Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the month of November, we are honoring Indigenous Heritage Month. Each week, members of our church family will be sharing stories that acknowledge and celebrate Indigenous heritage from their lived experiences to the world at large. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the past six years, we have been on a journey of racial reconciliation in our church family. We have become awake to the myth of a post-racial America, and we, even more, have discovered the multi-ethnic identity of our church family. To that end, we want to grow into the multi-ethnic, multicultural family of God by celebrating our unity in diversity. This podcast is one part of that journey. Through acknowledgement of the past, we want to grow in empathy to the people around us, the people that we call family. In this conversation, we are going to be learning about the pains of the past for indigenous peoples in Oregon and discuss a vision for the future. Uh, My name is Tyler Hand, creative director and member of the Racial Justice Committee here at Bridgetown. I'm Matt. I live in Portland. And I've been working in the family law and juvenile justice arena for about 15 years. My name is Tabitha Leedy, and I attend Bridgetown Church. I'm also a member of the Wiat tribe. Matt and Tab are married and, like they said, have been part of Bridgetown from the very beginning. Uh, So thank you for being with us to discuss uh, your knowledge Uh, one, of the injustice in Oregon when it comes to Indigenous peoples, and two, speak into it from your personal life story uh, to agree. So thank you, Tab, uh, for being willing to share with us. First, what is Indigenous Heritage Month? Why are we celebrating it? Indigenous Peoples Month is generally a time to recognize the, the importance of our culture. Um, it's a time to really make people aware of our culture, inviting them into our traditions and the things that we do that may seem even odd to most people, especially Christians. Uh, it may make people uncomfortable even at times, but it's allowing people to see what other cultures do to connect with the Creator. Mm-hmm. Um, another, what might feel like a basic question, why do we call it Indigenous Peoples Month? Why the specific language there? I also think that it's important to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Month as someone who is not Native American, um, as a way to remind myself, um, and reconnect with truth about what has come before me and my community in the actual physical land that I live on, as well as the people that I am surrounded by, even the strangers I'm surrounded by, um, and our collective history that brings us to where we are today. I think that it makes sense to use a term like indigenous peoples or Native Americans as opposed to Indians, if nothing else, because it wasn't India when Columbus landed. Um, and though the collective group of peoples um, that were 
many nations all over North America and Central America that were encountered by the explorers. They were indigenous to the land. They were native to the land, and they were more than one. Um, uh, they were more than one block of people. They were mm -hmm. unique in in many different ways that affected by geography, affected by their own cultures that they had developed for thousands of years. And so plural peoples or Americans, Native Americans, um, makes sense. And it wasn't India. It was a mistake. Mm -hmm. So continuing to use the term Indian, um, while some people find it disparaging, and, and it's fine, I think, to even feel that way about it, it's just simply inaccurate. Mm -hmm. It's these... Um, these people groups continue to be indigenous um, and were the first nations, the first peoples here. And those are the kind of terms that I think make the most sense when we, when we talk, at least when I talk. Yeah. So there's a lot of question there too, how people can best identify the indigenous peoples of a place. Uh, whether it be Indian, Native American, Indigenous, First Nations, or Original Peoples is the new uh, language that's starting to be be used. Um, which of these feel most appropriate to you, Tab? And how do you separate uniquely Indigenous Indigenous peoples of Oregon who are who are native to this land before it was even called Oregon? How do you continue to attach the certain lands to the identity of people without also attaching these new names like Oregon to them as well. Does that question make sense? Yeah, I think, um, I think like what Matt was saying, a lot of it is just that we, you often hear tribes refer to themselves as, as Cherokee nation as like, they actually refer to themselves as nations because that's what they, they were. That's what they, that's what they are. They're just not referred to that any referred to as that anymore. Um, by, by the majority of people, people often will find that they're calling themselves and lumping all native Americans together. And that is such a disservice and such, um, I don't even know if disrespectful is the right word, but it's it's such a cut to the tribes who have these specific um, cultural things that they do that are very individual to their tribes. And even such things like like little things where like a lot of people, as soon as they hear the word Native American, they instantly think of like tribal garment with like feathers and things like that but whereas like other tribes they actually didn't wear feathers on their head they wore um like woven baskets and things like that mm -hmm. so there, there there are just so many little differences that it's it would be like literally comparing a country to another country and then people are just uh. lumping them all together as one people and that's not that's not true yeah it feels unhelpful yeah 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 so um more um, pretty basic history to indigenous peoples in Oregon is my understanding is that there were four distinct cultures or probably better said four distinct geographical areas that contained unique cultures uh, with variations of terrain and climate that kind of led to the diversity among tribes. Uh, these four districts were, uh, my understanding, the Northwest Coast, uh, 
the plateau, which is uh, northeast Oregon, the Great Basin, which is um, southeast Oregon, and then the kind of Northern California, Southern Oregon area. Um, and in all, there were at once more than 60 tribes and bands that once lived in, in the geographical area that we now call Oregon, speaking at least 18 different languages is what's my very quick historical uh, research uh, revealed. But it, the current states of tribes in Oregon is that there's nine federally recognized that still remain, and most of them are better defined as confederations. So what is a tribe? What is a confederation? How does that, uh, how do these people exist in, in these groupings today? Yeah, there are, there are different ways that people want to define them. Some of it is, um, let's be clear, that the government makes us define these things. Yes. The, so the, these are not actually indigenous terms in which yeah, we refer to ourselves. The nine federally recognized Correct. tribes felt yeah. telling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of tribes that aren't federally recognized that still, like those tribes will still exist. Mm -hmm. They still do exist. Um and they're just not recognized as such. Um, there are even situations where, like, like the original amount of the the tribes that were recognized, that was like taken away, and and then kind of given back slowly on the government's terms. So there are several things like that where, like, we can't even identify as as what we want to identify as. Um, right. You were telling me that um, is it is it like a certain tribal registration or census where you have to choose and essentially abandon other parts of your correct ancestry. Yes, yeah. you are you are asked to identify you have to choose one tribe that you are belonging to and then the rest you are not allowed to identify with. <laughs> yeah, it feels so unhelpful to celebrating and acknowledging what is clearly a big part of each of these people right. that belong to each of these tribes. Right. And confederations are in simple terms like it's a it's a loose union of tribal groups for political purposes ultimately, you know, it's a band together to try and um, carry out some of the cultural norms as well as just working together to um, kind of kind of like sticking together in order for like in order for the common good to to come for your tribe so that's when you get the confederations of tribes and then other ones are referred to as as rancherias and uh, you know there are lots of different ways that people will refer to those groupings of tribes got it um so that's kind of the current state of uh, how uh, indigenous peoples are able to identify in tribes um, thinking about Oregon's history, it's, it's hard to detach, especially, um, what we now know as the doctrine of discovery or manifest destiny, um, that became most evident, at least in what Oregon is so famously known for as the Oregon trail. Um, how do you think that that shaped the socio-political climates of settlers and indigenous peoples, uh, both in the past and into the present. Right. Um, I think what's important is 
settlers came because government encouraged them to. So as as settlers began to inhabit Oregon in the 1840s, um, the government was encouraging settlers to to go and to lay claim on land. Um, and so there was never, I think it's important to note that there were never any um, agreements at this point. It was just like, go and take what land you want and lay claim on it. And without recognizing that the land already belonged to somebody, um, it was just a very entitled attitude to come into the land with. And then when the when the Land Act was passed, it it didn't offer much. Like it, you know, it ordered it offered three hundred and twenty acre parcels to thousands of white immigrants. Um, but this the Indian land just became less and less and less and it, it happened so quickly as people were here trying to make trying to lay claim to their land that they called it. Yeah. Matt, you mentioned that um, this moment in history, this unique moment when around the Doctrine of Discovery and what Tab is mentioning, the Oregon Donation Land Act from 1850, giving large parcels of land to white settlers. This, in your words, was what you described the original sin of this place. Um, what are your, what are more of your thoughts on that? It's important for me at this point, just conceptually to contextualize for myself and remind myself that, that I'm going to try to talk about two different ways of thinking. Um, one of the ways of thinking is I, I am a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant person and my Western European enlightenment or post-enlightenment uh, culture is is something that is water that I swim in and it's something that I that is just natural to me. It's not something that I have to think about. Um, and so things like property and um, even owning land is something that is just second nature to me um, as the culture that I've been raised in. Um, but as things like uh, an analogous idea would be that like the 1619 project that the New York Times has done and there can be a lot of set about that, but one of the, I think the key points of that and then the doctrine of, the dis of discovery is the idea that um, how we got to where we are today is a product of so many moving pieces and from a Jesus or uh, kingdom-centered lens. We need to look at where injustice has happened and the doctrine of discovery is born out of hundreds of years back, starting in the 1400s, um, European monarchies in, um, in concert with the church in Rome um, began exploring. And they're trying to extend their kingdoms, extend their power, enrich themselves. And they needed, they needed a legal understanding that the church would sanction about how th these, the, the monarchies, how they would enlarge the, um, their influence, enlarge their power, enlarge their territory, and have it be legal um, in, in a way that, that um, 
even differing countries like Spain or Portugal and France and um, Britain, how they would even interact with each other and define their own boundaries as they go out and colonize the world. And so these papal bulls, which was essentially the Pope coming out and saying, um, here are here are some rules and regulations that are sanctioned by the church about how to go about uh, expanding your power, your influence, your property. And these papal bulls coming out of the 1400s, um, and you go to Columbus in 1492, um, this is even where you get the term planting your flag. When land was discovered, if the explorers... Um, used the land in such a way uh, that was um, sanctioned under these papal bulls, that land became the property of the kingdom of Portugal or the kingdom of Spain or, or Britain, etc. And so um, these papal bulls, one of the things that they did was they needed to characterize the local populations uh, in a way that um, didn't require the kingdoms to pay for the land that they were about to take from the local populations. So they they came to a definitional problem. They needed to either define the people away as non-human or and or they needed to define the land in a way that would require the local people to be using the land in a way that could not be taken so if they were being productive with the land in a way that um, the church and Europe considered productive, they would then, um, the way that the church sanctioned it was you would have to purchase land from those types of locals. But if the people that you encountered were not being, um, were not using the land in a way that was deemed, uh, legally deemed by the church as appropriate or useful, um, that land was free to be discovered. Hence the doctrine of discovery. This feels uh, appropriate uh, to um, to read a, a particular quote uh, that I found from an indigenous woman. Um, the source was OPB. She re- she said, "Our inability to read and write, uh, them being the local tribes uh, in that time and place, uh, our inability to read and write, not living in permanent dwellings, not being an agricultural society, never mind that they were horticultural." were all things to keep them labeled as heathens, savages, primitives, and uncivilized peoples. And most of those things were used to dispossess them of their lands. So this is what you're describing when, it, when the native peoples of Oregon were disqualified from, from residing in the place of their ancestors because they were not using the land or existing on the land in a way that European colonizers Soffit. I think for me, trying to step out of my cultural lens and, and put myself in a place where I could feel and, and be compassionate to, to an injustice being done, culturally, Native Americans existed on the land as a people group where they did not, they did not they had not existed on that land for thousands of years like the thousands of years that Europeans had um, had developed even the idea of property rights um, in the monarchical system in Europe. 
So when these explorers arrive and look at these native populations and see that they are culturally so distinct in their view of what land could be good for or what it could be useful for, um, that was that is why they needed papal bulls. They they recognized that these people were human in some way, and so they needed a legal and a religious justification for uh, taking their land, for enslaving them, for even perpetrating abuse and violence against them. So they became pagans. They became people who did not use the land appropriately. And that became the legal justification and the religious justification for why we would... The explorers didn't even take the land. Taking would imply that the... there was an idea that the Native Americans owned the land. They did not. We defined that out. They did not own the land. The land needed to be discovered. It was discovered. It was not being used um, in a way that definitionally would require us to pay for it or to exchange goods or services for it. And so it became, by default, the land of the explorers, the conquerors. Right, Uh, because they had no framework for what ancestral land means. Right, and and the Native Americans, I I would assume, um, and this is is a white person speaking way out of my depth, but I I assume that that there was probably a fair amount of confusion for many of them where because because these explorers were showing up and planting flags and acting like they owned land in a way that would have been completely foreign to the local population, they didn't, at least in the beginning, they didn't even, they were speaking two different languages, literally. Um, They were literally speaking two different languages and culturally there was just no analogy. And so... um, so the conquerors just ran rampant over the land. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's not ancient history, but this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This goes up to um, a present day example uh, that, and this can get super in the weeds, but um, a present day example if people want to go look is a, a case from 2005, a Supreme Court case um, City of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. And writing for the majority, Justice, um, late Justice Ginsburg, um, wrote a decision that um, went against the tribes. And y- there's a whole lot of nuance in this opinion. S- Supreme Court opinions are, are always very nuanced. But the first footnote cites the doctrine of discovery. And part of the underlying... Um, justification for the Supreme Court, and this is Justice Ginsburg writing for the majority in 2005, part of the justification for not siding with this Native American nation was basically that to go back hundreds of years and give these Native Americans uh, recompense or reparation for land that they no longer have would would be too difficult. The land has been bought and sold 
in a European, um, Western European Enlightenment style legal system for hundreds of years. And to undo all of that, um, all of that was done based on the doctrine of discovery. And to undo all of that would be too difficult. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't overruled the doctrine of discovery. The Supreme Court hasn't gone back and said this was, um, like in the Dred Scott case, like slavery was was uh, something that was uh, sinful or illegal in our Western European um, legal system. It's still there. The doctrine of discovery is still cited as legal precedent, even from the highest court, um, as justification for why these native populations continue to be um, confined to reservations. For instance, the reservation was land um, that the federal or state government ended up deciding, okay, look, we've got these native populations. They're really mad about taking us taking their land and killing their people. So we need to give them a place to relocate and a place where they can um, constitute a self-government and, and begin um, living as they had been living for thousands of years, but now on a specific defined piece of land. Um, and even the idea that we would give them boundaries and, and political boundaries, legal boundaries, and geographic boundaries is, um, is in essence, rooted in the doctrine of discovery. It's rooted in Western European legal thought that this is how we deal with property in this country. Um, and if these native populations want to continue existing as distinct nations in our country, they at least have to play by some of our rules. And so we're going to give them and offer them a certain plot of land, and they can go on that land, and they can operate to a certain extent their own self-government and, and operate under their own laws and their own constitutions. Um, but to a certain extent, they're still subject to uh, the, they're still subject to the uh, United States Constitution. They'll, they're still subject in certain ways to federal jurisdiction, but um, they can go and do this self-governance on these discrete pieces of land that that we, the U.S. government, have have set out for them. Yeah. So I I do think it's important to to clearly define that. Y yes, they gave some land but it it is they have overriding sovereignty over any of our land or our our decisions that are made so it's it is our land but it's not our land yeah so um tell us more about the history of the formation of reservations and the long-term effect they've had in oregon really the, the nation but as, as much as you're able to speak into Oregon's history. Yeah, I mean, you know, along with the Oregon Trail, like it, they didn't just take the land, but they also brought with them a ton of disease that was not previously introduced. And some of it intentionally. Some of it intentionally. Yeah, it was smallpox, measles, right. uh, malaria, influenza, uh, dysentery. Yeah. And um, you bring diseases like that into into small areas where they have not been exposed to diseases like that, and it it wiped out a large population of of Native Americans in 
in these areas where settlers began, became um, just really forceful with how they decided to take land and, and interact with Native people. So how do you see the um, reservations uh, as they currently exist uh, having evolved over this history? I think there are, I mean, there has been some evolution in how they fight their battles. I, I feel like they are getting more vocal um, with fighting some of these battles, with asking for some of their land back. Um, I think for a long time, because of the mass genocides and um, abuse and injustices that were done, it made the people very hesitant to ask for anything in return in fear um, that more of their land, more of their culture would be stolen from them. And um, like I know for my tribe, like we just in the last 10 years got a section of our land back that mm-hmm. a giant massacre happened on. And, and that was um, a huge breakthrough for our tribe. But there's just so much history and culture that has to be um, worked on constantly to be restored. Mm-hmm. And that part is, is, is heartbreaking. It's like heartbreaking victories for these tribes to receive some of their land back, but then also have to uh, wrestle with the injustices that happened and, and still have to have ceremonies for the, the people that died in those places that they never got a chance to mm-hmm. mourn. Yeah, the original reservation um, areas were once quite large, uh, some of them even up to a million acres. But over time, they were diminished in size uh, for a lot of reasons, mostly the U.S. government claiming further doctrine of discovery, claiming further need for the land, or even beyond that, because they'd inflict so much violence and illness upon the indigenous populations that the populations uh, decreased. And therefore, the government said, well, you need less land now. So over time, they took more and more even of these, res- these preserved lands that they promised to these tribes for, for, for the rest of time. This land, they even began to take away from them in systematically um, evolving uh, governmental procedures. And so uh, the two of you lived in Pendleton for some time, which is a city known for being built in a space that was once reservation land taken for the sake of, of white infrastructure. What, what was that experience like um, living so close to that type of tension? I guess if nothing else, for what Bridgetown's doing, in terms of trying to be proximate to injustice and proximate to just our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, and the people of Oregon, um, it's important to even know where some of these reservations are. Um, There's seven of them in in Oregon. Um, The Burns Paiute Reservation, which is um, down by Burns, Oregon, Coos Lower Umquan Sayusla res- Reservation that's out on the southern coast, the Coquille Reservation that's out outside of Coos Bay, the Grand Ronde Community, um, which is in uh, Yamhill and Polk counties, the Siletz, um, under the Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians, which is in Lincoln County, the Umatilla Reservation, which is the um, Confederated Tribe of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, which is 
um, in Umatilla County and somewhat in Union County in northeast Oregon, as well as uh, the Warm Spring Reservation, which is in Wasco and Jefferson County. Um, as well as th they also have some parts in Clackamas, Marion, and Lynn County. Um, there's a couple of planned reservations. Um, one uh, planned reservation is the is for the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua, as well as the Klamath Reservation. There's also as you drive out on as you drive east on 84, you um, you'll see a sign for the Salillo Village. It's not a reservation, but it is. <laughs> it's and this is stuff that I would encourage people to do some research on. If nothing else, you will realize how complicated all of this gets so quickly, um, and how complicated our notion of property rights can get. So the Salillo Village is actually owned by the United States government, and it is held in trust uh, by the Bureau of Indian Affairs for use by the Umatilla Tonino, which is the Warm Springs, Yakima, and Columbia River Indians. And that's where they can do, they can fish on the Columbia. Um, they have fishing rights there. If you are aware of Oregon history and Oregon politics, things like the dams on the Columbia and the dams on the Snake River, things like that are um, intimately intertwined with our, I say our, Oregon's political relationship with, well, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, um, uh, California, with th their political relationships to these tribes. Um, that said, living in Pendleton, it's, um, you go on the reservation and it is, it's, you wouldn't even know that you crossed into the reservation if you didn't notice a sign or something um, they do have most of these reservations have uh, their own law enforcement their own social services they've got their own hospital um, here in Oregon you see them that some of them have their own casinos that's a, a political decision um, to allow the tribes to have to operate um, gambling in in order that that's part of how they um, pay for their social services uh, I think the other thing I, I would note, and, and we can get into this too, is that there, uh, the relationship that registered tribal members have with um, their own reservation, their own tribe, as well as um, other uh, political entities like the state of Oregon can be complex. Um, if you are a if you are a child and you're a registered member of a federally recognized tribe, you gain certain legal protections that you would otherwise not have. Um, that's a, that can become a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, uh, at times in this conversation, I may use the term Indian child. Um, I would use that intentionally because that's a legal definition um, to be considered an Indian on Indian country. Um, those terms are actually codified in federal and state law um, and th they're definitional you are an indian if you are a registered member of a federally recognized tribe there are some tribes in the state of oregon that are not federally registered um, which means when they applied to the federal government to become federal uh, federally recognized for one reason or another the federal government decided that um I, I'll just say it this way. They decided that 
those Indians were not Indians, um, and they are not legally defined as Indians, at least in our um, in the state of Oregon, as far as the federal government is concerned. When I look just briefly, the Clatsop-Nehalem Confederated Tribes of Oregon, for instance, um, and the Clatsop and Tillamook Tribes, uh, those are um, those are native peoples who can demonstrate native heritage on this land in this geographic area um but because of decisions made at the federal or state level they cannot claim in a court in Oregon or a federal court that they are indians on indian country because they are not a federally recognized tribe and therefore they are not technically by definition indians um and so the the benefits um uh, the the benefits and the kind of recognition and and things that flow to um federally recognized tribes don't flow to people like that uh, because they don't uh, they are not they don't definitionally qualify which is a strange thing to even wrap your head around but it's it's true it's not that these people are don't have any claim to be it's not like they're faking it um they can prove that they have uh, native ancestry here in this geographic area for thousands of years but um, because of one reason or another their tribe is not recognized and therefore they their children and even i mean ultimately what is um, sobering about this is that their their cultural heritage is um is defined out they are not they are not a tribe they are not indians um and i think that that even that's something to be said for those confederated tribes not not to denigrate it i know that these the like for instance the ctyr out in pendleton they are in the grand ron all of these tribes are all these confederations are are very proud of their nations and they're proud of their confederations um but some of what's happened by even requiring them to confederate and and requiring them to go through these um, processes of becoming federally recognized and and um, requiring them to meet certain definitions necessarily and there's there's probably some wisdom in going through all of that, but it necessarily has a cost on their culture. It has a cost on their collective culture and these individual tribes' cultures to um to require them to fit in a certain defined uh set of boundaries or well literal geographic boundaries and or um definitional legal boundaries to become uh defined as an indian person or not there was a local indigenous leader who said uh in an interview Assimilation has been a stated goal of U.S. Indian policy that Native people would be better off if they could, quote, lose their Indianness, quit speaking their native languages, learn English, dress in modern clothes, and convert to Western religions. How do we, as Bridgetown Church, avoid that forced assimilation? In what ways can we as a church and a city a state 
celebrate the uniqueness of indigenous peoples without forcing them to assimilate to white customs and cultures, especially within the church. So uh, Tabitha is going to be, Tabitha's answer to this is incredibly important. I would say from my perspective, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kid who grew up reading Louis L'Amour books and grew up in the West and um, (laughs) didn't understand the problem with having the Dallas Cowboys and the now Washington Commanders play on Thanksgiving Day um, and, and the irony of all of that. I think for me and people like me, the answer to that question maybe is first and foremost for us to to learn a, learn a little bit or learn as much as we can about uh, what it what it cost these other cultures to get my ancestry to where I am today, living in Oregon, living in the West, what it cost all of these other cultures, these other nations, these, these other peoples to, to allow me to be where I am um, and let that affect me because that's, that's heavy. Um, there's a lot of injustice. There is a lot of I don't throw around the term genocide lightly. There's a lot of genocide um, that has enabled me to be where I am at. Um, And to recognize that is not foolish or silly or or even self-deprecating. I think it's just being honest with with how I have come to be where I am and how we as a group of people in Oregon, the state of Oregon and the people of Oregon have come to be where we are and recognizing and sitting with and letting that collective history affect us first um, and then listening to listening to the Native Americans, the peoples we have affected, that our collective ancestry has affected, maybe second, and then having sat with the information and then listened, um, moving into some kind of action. Third, perhaps, um, I don't want to jump immediately to doing something because I, at least for me, I think it's smarter for me to um, get my feet contextualized and grounded in where how I arrived at where I'm at, and then listen to other people's perspectives, and then um, from there there'll there'll be some probably fairly clearly even in my own life there'll be some easy actions to take as a response to that question of how how do we not continue to ignore or whitewash or um, gloss over how we've arrived at where we are. I think it's really important um, to recognize that to grow means that you have to make yourself uncomfortable. And in so many ways, the way that Natives talk about Jesus and Creator is uncomfortable 
for the typical churchgoer. It sounds more mystical maybe than they're used to. And I think that one of the things that would be really, really good, a good first step is to just start to attend even just like local events that our community does. Look for them. There are a lot of them, actually, if you open your eyes. Um, Even in Portland, there's a lot of Native events that you can actually attend and just really dive into experiencing some of the culture, some of the things that they do that mean a lot to them and start to understand. Um, And then also just being able to be quick to listen and slow to speak. I think that so many times we're so fast on, on being so woke that we don't take the moment to listen to the people around us and what they're actually wanting, what they actually are desiring. Um, For good reason, Natives are very, very skeptical of help um, because from the moment they were introduced to white people and settlers, um, they they were deceived in very dishonest ways that wiped out a lot of their heritage. And so being able to to just listen to the people and the organizations that are doing this kind of work, um, listening to people, people's heritage and their um, their cultural uh, ceremonies, things like that that may make you uncomfortable, but also it's just a really good way to start to understand maybe what what is uncomfortable for you is is not bad. It's just different. So on what Tabitha just said there, uh, in terms of Native Americans, tribes being skeptical of help. Um, and for me, this is, I've experienced that just in interpersonal interactions. Um, and then going back through my response to your question, Tyler, about how do we not whitewash this? I come back, at least for me, it's important for me to remind myself um, I, can, I can be so sure that I have a right answer, so sure that I can be of use, so sure that I can be helpful. Um, and, and even, you know, I'm smart. I can think through this and come up with um, solutions to make something better or make, make things better. Um, I'm going to read a section from a Supreme Court case from the 1890s that um, the opinion that Ruth Bader uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote, um, and she cites to this case, the majority opinion in 2005, so 17 years ago, they cite to this case from 1892. And by citing it, they are not, they're not in endorsing what I'm about to read. I don't want to be confused to suggest that the Supreme Court of the United States or anyone on it actually thinks that this is true 
or endorses what's about to be said, but they cite it. And when the Supreme Court cites a case, they are saying, in the past, we have used lines of logic like this one, and we're we're having you, we're reminding you with the citation that what we are saying today in 2005 is not new. It is just a continuation of a line of thinking that we have used. And it's important for me as somebody that is non-native um, that wants to be useful and wants to be helpful to re- remember how we've got here. So in 1892, this is another case where um, the Native American was not getting, the Supreme Court did not cite side with the Native American um, on property, uh, a question about property. And one of the um, one of the justifications to boil it all down was the Supreme Court was using was essentially that they waited too long, that the property has passed through too many hands and it's just, it's too bad for this Native American that they couldn't get this, this property back that they wanted. So in reply, I'm, I'm just jumping in in the middle of this, in reply to this defense of latches, which is a legal term for essentially waiting too long to try to make something right. Plaintiffs rely mainly upon the fact that Sophia Felix and her heirs were at the time and continued to be until 1887 tribal Indians, members of the Sioux Nation, residing upon their reservation in the state of Minnesota and incapable of suing in any of the courts of the United States. We are by no means insensible to the force of this suggestion. Whatever may have been the injustice visited upon this unfortunate race of people by their white neighbors, This court has repeatedly held them to be the wards of the nation, entitled to special protection in its courts, and as persons in a state of pupillage. Congress, too, and and remember, this is, this is, I, I think that's, this is a huge part of why Native Americans may be a little skeptical of help. They are as persons in a state of pupillage. Congress, too, has recognized their dependent condition and their hopeless inability to withstand the wiles or cope with the power of the superior race. By imposing restrictions upon their power to alienate lands, assigned to them in severalty, either by making them script non-assignable, as in this case, or by requiring the assent of the president to their execution of deeds. That's, that is the Supreme Court of the United States in 1892 saying, something just blatantly, explicitly racist. And in 2005, they cite this case as, as ongoing precedent for why, why the, um, and this is something that's been used in history, why the Indian problem is just really difficult to solve. We, we took all of their land and we have defined them in a lot of ways out of um, outside of their of their own culture, and are forcing them to play by our rules. And for me to then ask those people if they would like my help, it would be reasonable for them to be hesitant and skeptical. And I think it would be really wise for folks like me to to let that sit. And, and to really unpack how devastating to their culture, these native people's cultures, 
um, all of this can be, how unsettling to their core identities all of this had to have been, um, to the point that maybe the best thing I can do to help for at least a while is to just be quiet, to read what I can, learn what I can about this, to be proximate in the ways that I'm able to, but to, to predominantly be quiet and listen to these communities and what they have to say. Um, people like Tabitha who can speak from a native lens, but and from a Jesus kingdom-centric lens about um, ways forward and ways to perhaps undo injustice um, and or if nothing else to try not to continue perpetuating the injustice. Thank you, Matt, for sharing that with us, um, that research and uh, depth of knowledge and empathy that you are demonstrating is really helpful. Um, and to Tab for being here to tell part of your story. To end, I just want to say that we honor and celebrate the original peoples of North America as fully human and fully made in the image of God, whose communities lived in harmony with this land for generations. Their beautiful traditions, creative expressions, advocacy as caretakers and protectors of land, and insight into sustainability have established a rich legacy. What we now call Portland, Oregon, and Multnomah County are the traditional lands of the Cowlitz, Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Wasco, Malala, and Watalala bands of the Chinook, and many other nations of the, quote, Big River, also known as the Columbia. The land we occupy as a nation, as a city, and as a church was taken unjustly. Today, people from these bands have become, become part of the Confederate tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederate tribes of the Siletz Indians, and the Chinook Nation and Cowlitz Nation. For more learning on this subject, we recommend Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery from Mark Charles as well as Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, a Native American expression of the Jesus Way from Richard Twiss, who also wrote a book called One Church, Many Tribes. Uh, beyond that, we also recommend First Nations Version, an indigenous translation of the New Testament from InterVarsity Press. Each of them have unique contributions to our further education and modern understanding of indigenous peoples in America. Uh, but also be sure to listen to more stories uh, from members of our, of our church family for the month of November as we continue uh, Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month, including Tabitha, who will speak to us about her personal story as an Indigenous woman growing up in Oregon. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Indigenous heritage, Oregon's racist past, and Bridgetown's vision for the future, visit bridgetown.church justice.